every once in a while on a Sunday morning, what I like to do is I like to, in my mind's eye, think of just how far-reaching is the extent of Christian worship. Now, I know there's different time zones across different nations, but right now there are not just millions, not just hundreds of millions, but over and above probably a billion people gathering in buildings worshiping the risen, reigning Jesus Christ. 2018, and he's still the most influential person who's ever walked the face of planet Earth. It's astounding. It's remarkable. Now, I was reading an article by BBC, and they were describing a new church in North London. North London, and this church was very interesting in that it had a lot of the same things that we have here at our church. They had, for example, music that was very, very vibrant and you could tap your foot to. They had people raising their hands during the music. They had people there that were coming to hear a message, and after the message, there would be a moment of contemplation. They were really passionate about truth, and they wanted to make a good impact on the world, and they described themselves as being on a spiritual journey. This church, in its second meeting, had attracted 300 young people, even more than the older churches, St. Jude's and St. Peter's, just down the block that only had 30 people apiece. So it would seem that this church, while they had music and they had programs and they had all these different opportunities, and they even had somebody come and share and they had times of contemplation, was a growing, exciting church. It was a church that met in an old church. What was unique about this church, though, was that the members of this church did not and do not believe in God. It's an atheist church. I know what you're thinking. That's like a communist selling stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. That's like Ronald McDonald eating a Whopper at Burger King. What are you doing? An atheist in an old church singing songs and having moments of contemplation. The article reads like this. Instead of hymns, the non-faithful get to their feet and sing along to Stevie Wonder and Queen. There's a reading, true story, there's a reading not from the Bible, but from Alice in Wonderland, and there's a message not on Christian theology, but on antimatter theory. It's here at this church that people gather together and God is not needed. One of the members said this, it's, nice, it's a nice excuse, this church, which they call the Sunday Assembly. It's a nice excuse to get together and have a bit of community without any of the religion. Now, if you are going to try and understand what this is, try to diagnose it culturally and theologically, many of us would probably remember what we've heard many times from this pulpit, that every single human heart is made in the image of God and made to worship God. Just because every human heart is made to worship God doesn't mean that every human heart does worship God. But just because they don't worship the one true God, it doesn't mean that they're not worshiping. There are places of worship outside of church buildings. Sometimes they're in bars. Sometimes they're in stadiums. Sometimes they're in gyms. Sometimes the, uh, they're even our workplaces. Wherever we go to find our identity, our security, 
our salvation and satisfaction, we are attributing worth to that person or that thing, and that's what worship is. Every single person is looking for identity, looking for security, looking for satisfaction, and hoping that someone or something might save them. All of us. Now, we do this individually. What's so interesting about this Sunday assembly of non-believers and the church, believe it or not, the church, quote-unquote, this assembly has spread. It's spread all over the world. It now has 70 different chapters in eight different countries. So not only do they believe in truth, not only are they trying to make an impact, but they're spreading. So if we are going to ask the question, yes, it would seem that every human heart desires something transcendent, looking for something outside of itself to give honor and allegiance to, but we don't just desire to do it individually. We desire to do it corporately. There's something in us that longs for that connectivity, that longs for this journey of life to walk it and to live it with other people to our left and to our right. So much so that now there's churches that don't even worship God, but they still want all the benefits of a Christian community. If we were going to ask you one simple question, and sometimes the simplest questions are the hardest to answer, what would be the one non-negotiable part and component of a worship service, of church life? Would it be perhaps the quality of coffee in the fellowship hall? How many of us love our coffee? Amen? Is that non-negotiable? Probably not. What about even perhaps the quality of the programs for your children? Or the quality of the outreaches for the community? Or even the quality and the vibrancy of the music? Or even the health of the community and its relationships? What is the non-negotiable part of Christian worship? What makes Christian worship Christian? Good answer. By the way, that's always the right answer. What makes Christian worship distinct is Jesus Christ. What makes Christian worship desirable is Jesus Christ. What makes Christian worship powerful is Jesus Christ. Now listen, what makes worship possible is the word of God. How does that old hymn go? Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. You see, there's a direct correlation between the word of God incarnate in flesh in Christ. The Bible describes the word of God as the extension of who God is, right? So the word of God in Christ is revealed in the word of God in Scripture. And there's a direct correlation to the two. If we have a low view of the word of God, we will have a low view of the Son of God. We will still like Jesus, but our Jesus will look a lot like us. You've heard me say it before. In the beginning, God created man in his image, and then man, being a gentleman, tried to return the favor. Meaning that every single generation wants to bring God down and make God look like us so he wouldn't conflict or challenge our lifestyle. We still have this bent towards worship. We still have this desire to experience something transcendent. But the Bible says, know that God is unique and God is set apart and God is holy. But he's also gracious and he's spoken 
through his word. He's spoken through this book, this collection of books, this library of beautiful inspiration from generation to generation. So when we come to the Bible, it's not just information for each generation. It's also love that leads to transformation. The biggest book in your Bible, and by the way, the Bible was the best-selling book of 2017. It will be the best-selling book of 2018, and I can even predict it'll be the best-selling book of 2019. It's the best-selling book of all time, telling the story of the most influential person who's ever lived. The biggest book inside the most important book is the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms. Songs, poems, prayers of worship, and the biggest chapter in the biggest book, in the biggest and most influential book, is all about the book. Psalm 119, it's the word of God. In praise of God for his word. Do we think of God's word in this way, church? Because as we come to Nehemiah, we're going to see that this generation that is literally seeing revival is hungry for God's word. Those two things always go together. The psalmist says in 119 that your words, Lord, are sweeter than honey. Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet, a light for my path. Your statutes, Lord, are my heritage forever and the joy of my heart. And then for us, do we believe this church? Monmouth County, Ocean County, Jersey Shore, 2018. It says here in Psalm 119, 127, I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. We have a good window into what we worship by what we value most. So we have to ask ourselves how many of our actions on a regular basis is motivated by the sparkling allure of gold, where one day it will be taken from us, or one day it will rust and fade, or one day we will fade and rust. This book is truly a miracle, and it leads us not only to better living, but to the one who said, I am the way, the one who said, I am the truth, the one who said, I am the life. Christianity is distinct. Christianity is unique because it doesn't lead you to a list of rules initially. It doesn't lead you to a list of laws initially. It doesn't lead you to a pilgrimage or a place, but a person, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus in Nehemiah chapter 8? We are going to see that I fully believe he is. We're going to see a foreshadow, an explanation of what revival looks like, and a foreshadow of how Jesus has come for his people. Let's look at it, shall we? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered together as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had com commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people, of all the people, were attentive to the book of the law. What we see in Scripture 
is that a true revival is a true reversal of what we thought about God's word. A true revival is a true reversal of what we thought about God's word. Andrew Murray said it like this, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution, casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and his love triumph in our hearts and in our lives. This is a revival. How do I know? Because what's happening here is it's the people gathering together, what does it say? As one. People unified. And then not only unified, and it's not easy to unify people. Have you ever tried to unify people? Have you ever tried to take your little kids to the supermarket? Chaos. Unity, but then also hunger for God's word, right? It's the people, look at it. It's the people going to the priest saying, read us the law. This is rare. This is unique. This is powerful. All the people gather together and they go to the leadership. They go to Ezra. They go to the priest and say, we want to hear from God's law. So he does. And he reads it for six hours. How many of us after 20 minutes of preaching were like, buddy, you better hurry up. I got like something this afternoon. I don't even know what. <laughs> six hours. Can you envision? If I didn't let you leave for six hours, I'm tempted, right? You want to do it? You want to do it today? <laughs> We're ready. One of you said that. I couldn't even do six hours. Revival is breaking out. The people are hungry for God's word. And not only Ezra is there, but as it says in verse 4, Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. So what we're going to see here are some transferable principles to even how we do worship today. Reading from God's word that is encouraged both in Old Testament and New. Paul encouraged Timothy to not only preach God's word, but to publicly read God's word. Right? He's surrounded by other leaders, other priests, other scribes. And then verse 5, it says this. Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. You ever wonder why we stand for the reading of God's word? And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen. What does it say? Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Bible talks about lifting our hands, standing, and bowing. Now, some of us, we are totally, because of our own design, totally content coming into a worship service and just standing there or just sitting there. And praise God, you could be worshiping genuinely and authentically from your heart. But we do see examples of what we even see at this church. We stand for God's word and we, if you feel so led, lift your hands in holy praise. What does standing do? If someone important is about to walk into an office or to a Government building. What is everyone encouraged to do? Please rise. The judge is here, right? It shows respect. Not only that, but when we lift our hands, it shows surrender. Our physical acts can communicate our spiritual reality. But sometimes, let's be honest, it can be faked. Can it be faked? Absolutely. How do I know that this is not being faked? It's because not only their hunger for the word, but number two, their repentance over their sin. I can ask everybody to stand. And out of courtesy and tradition, you'll stand. But what I can't lead people to do is to, after they stand and hear the word, 
fall on their face and truly repent over their sin. You see, what there is, is there is respect for God's word in standing. There's a surrender to God's word in lifting their hands. And then there's a returning to God in repentance as they fall down on their face. So these scribes, these Levites, as it describes in verse 7, they helped Ezra teach the word, instruct the word. It says here, verse, uh, the second half of verse 7, the Levites helped the people to understand. Can everyone say understand? Understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so the people could understand the reading. So it wasn't just reading, it was also instructing and teaching. This is called exegesis. Can everyone say exegesis? Don't you feel smarter now? There's two ways to approach the Bible and how to teach it. And this is a good reminder even for us as we uh, not only grow in our own lives, but perhaps you're trying to teach your kids the word. This is part of the reason why we walk through the Bible for the most part. Nothing's wrong with the occasional topical sermon. But we want to come to God's word and say, God, we want all of it. Not just the parts we like. Not just the parts that are popular. Not just the parts that are convenient. And not just the parts I want to hear. God, we want all of you because we know that all of you is good. So we study the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we allow God's word to lead. That's called exegesis. God's word says this, so we teach it. We give object lessons. We give illustrations. We give cross-references. It's all to teach God's word. He's the good shepherd. We're the sheep. He leads us through his word. The challenge is eisegesis. Can we say eisegesis? Don't you feel even smarter now? Eisegesis takes an idea about myself or my culture or the world that I want Scripture to follow. Exegesus says, no, Scripture's going to lead and I'm going to follow. Eisegesus says, no, I have this idea about how I want life to go. And then, can we do this, church? We can pull Scriptures out of context and make it fit our own worldview. In Nehemiah, what we see is that true revival. God's Word is creating genuine worship. People want to hear the whole thing. They want to hear all the law, not just the stuff that's politically correct, not just the stuff that is culturally palatable. No, we want all of it. And it's leading to true transformation. They're understanding it. It's taught clearly. And they're leading. It's leading to true transformation. Now, these next several verses, we're going to dive back into next week because we're going to hear in verse 10 the most famous verse in all of Nehemiah. And when we hear it, I don't want to go over it too quickly. So we're going to revisit it next week because many of us, we live a joyless life on this journey with Jesus. Joy is different than happiness, and joy does lead to strength. And that's why I feel the need to spend an entire message talking about joy. Because in our culture, it can get diminished. Besides, when it's compared to God's beautiful vision of it. But let's read it anyway. Here in verse 9, and we'll go into details next week. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. 
Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your what, church? Strength. Verse 11. So the Levites calmed the people down, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their own way to eat and drink and send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. We have people in large masses weeping because they understand that God is holy and they are not. And you would think it would be at this time that the priest would say, yes, why don't you dwell in that place of repentance and that place of contrition because you are unforgiven. It's not what they do. It's not what they do. Joy is knowing you've already been forgiven. You've got to hear this word next week. We encourage you to please come back. But I know that this joy not only touches those who are the children of Abraham, but as we're going to see in the festival and the feast of booths, that in these feasts and in these festivals is a foreshadow of the one who would come and bring all tribes and all nations, whether they be Christian, whether they be Jew, or whether they even be Muslim. I'm going to read you a brief story by a young Muslim man named Richard Elul. Some of you have heard me share this story before. But this young Muslim man, he had no interest in reading the Bible. I grew up as a young man who went to a church where I didn't understand the Bible at all and had no interest in it. It was more of a family heirloom than it was a uh, source of pure joy and treasure. This Richard Alou had no interest in reading the Bible. He was a Muslim, after all, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Listen to the story. It's powerful. Still, he did figure out one way to put the Bible given to him by a Christian to good use. What does he do? He rips out the pages of the Bible and he rolls his marijuana joints with them so he could smoke marijuana with the pages of the Bible. If you were going to just hear that part, you would think that this person, this young man, this Muslim, Richard, is unreachable. God's word can reach anyone and everyone. Papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive, Richard said. So we would tear out pages from the Bibles and use them for our rolling papers. Listen to this story. It's powerful. On one occasion in 1978, Richard tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it in his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page from the Bible from his pocket and read these words from Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, he could not get the verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had shared the gospel with him. And one night, alone in his room, Richard prayed, Oh Lord, Lord God, I want to taste you like this verse says. And that same evening, Richard, this Muslim young man, accepted Christ Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. Church, there is power in God's word. It reaches those that you never thought could be reached. 
who is gathering in this story in Nehemiah chapter 8? Do we remember? Exiles. Remember last week? Last study? Now that the walls are finished, and what was the purpose of the wall? The purpose wasn't the wall. The wall was a means to a beautiful end so that the exiles could return home, so that God's promises could be fulfilled, that those who had been banished from God's city and God's promised land are now welcomed back. And these exiles who were living in captivity under a a, a non-Jewish, non-believing pagan tyrant are now coming home. God welcomes back exiles. He welcomes in prodigals. He says to sinners, come and be healed and be forgiven. And they celebrate. They celebrate with a feast that had not been celebrated for generations. Let's continue to read and we'll close with this. Here we see a foreshadow of our Savior Jesus Christ. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people, I'm in verse 13, with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law, verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. From, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read the book of the law of God. They kept the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. What we saw was this was the first day of the seventh month. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar is very, very important. The month of Tishri. And on the first day of the seventh month, they would have the feast of trumpets. And the trumpet would announce that the time and the season of harvest and agriculture has ended. And now the season of forgiveness and grace has begun. Putting it in layman's terms. Okay. So now on the first day of the month, there's this feast of trumpets. There's a changing of emphasis. You know what the Bible says about Christ? is not only he would come once, but Jesus said of himself, he would return. Return for his people. And before he returned, there would be a fulfilling of the time of the Gentiles in Luke 21. Also, Matthew 24 says, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. Here's what's amazing about the Bible. They would blow trumpets to signify that the harvest has come in. Jesus returns when? At the sound of a trumpet. Because all the exiles, the prodigals, the Gentiles, those non-believing people have come in. Gets even better. Day 10 of the month of Tishri is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Still celebrated by Jews today. But we believe that Yom Kippur 
is no longer applicable to us because the Day of Atonement happened on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus Christ, serving as our high priest, offered himself to make himself the Passover lamb that was slain so that when he died, his blood was shed, we have forgiveness of sin. And then when that goat was also sent out with the sins of the people, that means that we have expiation for our sin. We have covering for the future. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This Feast of Booths happens five days later. Do we ever keep track of that? Trumpets, atonement, and then booths. What is the significance of this? Why is it this now that Nehemiah wants to point out? Well, because I believe it's showing that they are adhering to God's law for the first time in generations. But secondly and lastly, I believe because it's foreshadowing the one who tented and tabernacled amongst us. The Feast of Booths, where they would create these booths on their journey through the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, these booths are fulfilled, I believe, in John chapter 1, verse 14. Maybe you know this verse. Maybe you hear it at Christmas. This is the Bible. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That word is tabernacled. He tempted amongst us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we're on this journey here now of sanctification through what can be a very barren wasteland on our way to the promised land, you might think to yourself, I'm alone. It feels like I'm alone. Perhaps you're the only believing person in your family. Or perhaps you're struggling privately, very secretly with a personal struggle or sin. You might think you're alone when the Bible says that God tented and tabernacled among us, you can hear and know that you've never been alone, that he's with us on this journey through the wilderness, and he will never leave us nor forsake us until we get to that promised land. Isn't God's word amazing? You know what's remarkable is that Genesis chapter 1 says God created everything through his word. The universe, the cosmos, the suns, the stars, the molecules, the rivers, everything was spoken out by God. You know what it says in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1? That that spoken word is Jesus. None other than Jesus. He is the creating, powerful word, which not only God created the universe, but this is what I want you to hear as we close our time together. You know what's going to outlast all of it? God speaking through Christ and God changing Christians' hearts. Jesus said this, and it's on the cover of your bulletin, and it's altogether astounding. Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus was the agent that God used to create the entire universe, and he says this, all of it's going to pass away. But you know what's not? Gosh, what you're holding in your hands. I hope that when we come to God's word, it does lead to repentance. But I also hope when we come to God's word, it leads to wonder. That even heaven and earth will pass away. Listen, but his word won't. 
heaven and earth have passed away, but what the Holy Spirit does in you to make you alive forever will never pass away either. What you see in these baptisms is a testimony that God takes dead people and makes them alive forever and evermore. This is how God's word creates genuine Christian worship. Let's pray, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and I thank you for your people. God, in the same way I see people coming out to study your word on Sunday mornings, Saturday nights, Wednesday nights, they're studying it in smaller groups with other people, perhaps of their same age or their same experience. But Father God, it's, it's one thing to hear the word. It's another thing to believe it. It's another thing to live it out. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but as James says, doers as well. God, I know the greatest impetus for all of the Christian life is you and your grace. 